0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to D minus six of my sciatica free hike on the Camino. Today, I have a very special guest on the Premiere Person podcast, which is a podcast about the transformative power of first person narratives. Hi, Salika.
1: Hi, Bruno.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm really well. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to talk to you because um, for several reasons. First of all, you are going to be hiking with me and you've done the Camino before. And so you have pieces of wisdom that I'm hoping to ask you about. Um, but also you have a lot of things to bring to the table when it comes to personal journey and and the impact of our personal journeys on the collective so in your day job you have been called an expert on resilience and mental fitness in times of crisis Um, and but you don't define yourself by your job title you instead define yourself by what you do in the world and that can show up when you um when you in parts of your life where you are a mother a friend an employee an entrepreneur a writer a volunteer can you tell us what the umbrella is for all those ways you show up in the world
1: yes thank you for that I felt very fancy as you were describing (laughs) it's always best to let somebody else describe you (laughs) um so for me the it's about what I'm here to do right and my jobs I'm going to have a lot of different jobs I suppose in this life I've already had a few um, different life situations but there is one line that is driving you know my um, my everyday purpose and that is really to elevate people particularly people who are in places where it's just uncomfortable they don't like it people who are suffering um I want to do that. I want to elevate people. I want that's who I want to be, right? And as a mother, I want to elevate my children and I do see a political purpose to this as well, which is, you know, I often say um healing is a social responsibility because if I'm not well, then I'm contaminating everybody with my unwellness. Um, And I can become aggressive, which can affect people. And to be fair with my background, me not taking care of my personal wellness uh, would lead me to become a very toxic member of society. And in taking care of my personal wellness, I have the power to change, first of all, my personal story, my personal experience of life, but then impact positively my portion of society. Right, and because society is just the sum of all the parts that make it, you know, you are society, you plus me is society. Um, when you start taking care of yourself, and I start taking care of myself, and we start learning ways to take care of our interactions as well in the society, then we actually have a chance as a society to thrive and. This is why, for me, this is not just a wellness, you know, which is it can sound like a very hippie Western concept, you know, so much time now you can take care of yourself and all of this. It sounds to me as what's really necessary for the world today. Mm, thank you for pointing that out. And
0: um, you mentioned something that, about where you come from would you be willing to take us on, through that story uh, online you often see how it started how it's going <laughs> and so where would you say how would you say it started
1: yeah i mean to be fair i can only view, i can only give you glimpses of it because i did realize i think in my adult life that my story was filled with stuff that maybe most people will experience two or three episodes of, you know, crisis in their lives. And when I look at my story, it seems like there's ongoing crisis for the first 18 years of my life. It's just one after the other. And obviously, I'm not trying to say that my I had it worse than everybody else, because it's really not true. I was privileged in many ways. but There was a lot going on. (laughs) And it was like somebody gave me the list and say, can you take all the boxes, please? Um, but I did grow up in a pretty dysfunctional environment. And like many people, I inherited generational trauma, which um, showed up in the relationships we had in my family. I'm of a mixed background as well. My mom is African. Um, my dad is European and the clashes of culture I experienced them in all possible ways. So I had nothing in French, we say repair. I don't know how you would say repair in English.
0: um like a landmark or something to to hold on
1: to an anchor. like I had nothing. I mm. had it, it was everything was very messed up. I grew up in the suburbs of Paris, if you know a little bit about the suburbs of Paris as well. You know what it's like right now, where at this present time, everything is being burned down. Um, And it was not just that home was an unsafe place to be. Um, Home was really breaking me in many ways. And it was not just home. There was no safe haven anywhere. I would go out into the world And all the messages we would send to, you know, brown people were very visible, particularly in the 80s and the 90s in France. Um, So I grew up with this whole understanding that I was inferior, that I was something laughable, um, and that pretty much my options in life were to become a drug dealer or some sort of, you know, social work for a social worker (laughs) in many ways. So this was the context I grew up in. And by the time I was nine years old, I was suicidal, right? So I was already contemplating suicide and actually trying to take action towards suicide at nine years old. And many times after and um, fell into drug addiction, uh, ended up, you know, in a hospital because they were they thought I was too dangerous for my own life when I was 14 and just you know with all the eating disorders like you name it I I remember going to a psychiatrist when I was um, 23 24 and the man saying can you please tick all the boxes where you feel Uh, you have an issue (laughs) and he looked at the sheet and he was like this is ridiculous like this is it's way too much and I was also neurodivergent so there was a lot going on Um, partly living at one point in Sarajevo post-war Sarajevo you name it like if you're trying to decorate the history there was a lot to to build on and what I remember feeling more than anything in my youth was there is something called happiness. It's not for people like me. I can see I can see it on TV. I can see some people having it really good and I was so convinced that it was not for people like me. I could never escape that fatality of crisis that was just following me everywhere around. And I'm talking about, you know, this story lightly because it's my story and I've digested it multiple times, sexual abuse, you know, y- you name it. And the reality is that in my youth, I remember feeling such a big void inside myself, consuming me, feeling like it was so excruciatingly painful to be alive that all I wanted was to just go home. I had this idea that there was a home and it was not here, you know. <laughs> and i just wanted to go home i was tired of it all and the pain was the pain was huge and i think one one of the things that was really difficult was feeling like this but growing up in an environment that kind of confirms the way you're feeling instead of telling you no it's okay look at it look you know there are brighter days coming I would look around and it's like there are no fucking brighter days everything's gonna be terrible like my best shot at life is to be you know drinking beer in front of a school at four o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of my 40s trying to have teenage friends who want to get high you know I thought like that's the best case scenario and for a lot of my friends you know they went through that they went to prison they died that was kind of the path this is what's available to you so that was the the reality I had to deal with can you
0: recall a moment that set you on a better
1: path yeah, it's very very clear so on my 18th birthday um I was it was the 2nd of April 2005 it's a very very big day for me because I woke up that day and what I felt was there is actually no way out. I cannot escape this and I am now convinced that I want to die. And the certainty that I had that day that I wanted to die um changed everything for me and by the way this is not a call out for such thoughts right if anyone is listening to this and is you know please seek help please seek help but the message is that for me the second I put things into that level of seriousness I started looking at the world as if I was saying goodbye to the world and I started seeing things like it. I was so convinced of it and obviously it didn't work but I was like I'm never going to sit down again and I'm never going to feel hot water on my skin when I have a shower and I'm never going to see leaves of trees moving in the wind and it was like all oh, the big drama that my life had been filled with for a few hours and I call it a moment of grace kind of they became insignificant and it was just like there was so much to life that had been here all along and I hadn't been able to witness it and now that I'm about to lose it all I realized that these were the most important things there is nothing more important than having that shower there is nothing more important than seeing and on that day I made a kind of a, a call to a to family friend saying, look, I've tried recovery so many times. Recovery doesn't work for me. But I'm very certain I want to die. And just in case, take me to a meeting first. Because, you know, I have nothing to lose now anymore. And that person took me to a meeting uh, 12 step 12 step meeting and I've been clean ever since uh, I've actually celebrated my 18th anniversary mm. uh, this year so I had 18 years thank you I had 18 years of like absolute hell and 18 years of bonus life mm. and yeah, and for the first few years I was living with that I can leave that earth anytime I want I had this card under my sleeve, you know, and thank God, I don't have this anymore. But what it did for me was, I really treated every day like a bonus, I really treated every day, like potentially, it's the last one. And as you know, later in life, I discovered that this illusion of control that I had over it, oh, I'm going to take my own life, blah, 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 blah. Actually, This is present in every day. I am not sure that tomorrow is going to happen, right? So it's allowed me to develop this absolute awe for the day that I have to live and the things that I have to live exactly as they are, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. So I want to react to or to ask you a follow-up question about this idea of not knowing if what's going to happen tomorrow if you'll still be there because what it triggers inside of me is a a bit of anxiety (laughs) Um, and so how do you navigate not uh, like that not being something that's doom and gloom and and scary uh but that actually carries carries you day after day in a sort of relaxed state how do you go to that idea of relaxation as opposed to anxiety
1: and i might lose it all tomorrow Um, i think there are two and i totally recognize what you're saying about the anxiety part right Um, I think there are two parts to this to this reality for me one is in many ways I can be very rational right and for me it's like if I only have one candy left in my pack of candy you know I can only savor it well if I savor it fully if I'm savoring it with the anxiety that there is no more candy to eat then I'm not actually savoring that last candy right so For me, it's really from the very almost non-emotional part. It's like, if this is all there is, I have to be all in. I have to be fully here and I have to be, you know, I do have children, which helps a lot as well. I find for me, um, because I look at them and I'm like, if this is my last day with my children, I have to you know, taking that moment, that essence that it's so beautiful, you know, I I connect with the beauty that is available at hand, rather than all the things I may lose, which I'm not enjoying anyway. You know, I think all these things, they are things that are anxiety provoking, because they're all in the mind level. And I'm kind of coming back into what's real, what's here and now. And Mm -hmm. What's here and now is sitting is incredible. Wearing pajama (laughs) is incredible. Um, And the other thing is that I am convinced that, you know, as I said before, and it can sound a little bit crazy, but I am convinced that this is not my home. I am convinced that I came here to experience this human life and that wherever I'm going next is awesome so I don't have that fear of death you know I actually think death is probably a good thing you know I'm I'm not saying I'm looking forward to it but I'm I've made peace with the idea that there is something after right so for me it's like I have to enjoy everything while it's still here without worrying that when I lose it, I've actually lost something hugely important. It kind of deflected the importance of it while at the same time making it the most important thing. I don't know if it makes sense. It's kind of contradictory.
0: It does. It does make sense. Uh, Thank you. And so you mentioned this idea of home earlier and and now um and so i wanted to ask you about that because it seems like one way you have already found a home is through the work that you do in the world and again or more like the way you show up in the world and so what prompted you to want to help other people and to make that your what it what it
1: looks like it is your mission in life i feel like here again i can tell you two different things i can tell you the honest answer which is an answer i'm shy about and i don't share too much but i think i will you know because why not um i think at one point in my second life I remember feeling so blissful that I felt, why should I continue here? Like, I don't see any other experience, life experience, human experiences that could add to the narrative. You know, like, I'm here. Am I just going to wait until time? It Nothing makes much sense. And I really felt it strong in my heart. <laughs> You know, um, as a strong message, I think sometimes people say they can hear God, they can connect. So I do have these conversations with something, you know, and the message was, you're really here to put God's peace in people's hearts. And for me, I heard that and it made extreme sense. Because what I was lacking my first life was that peace, which I called God's Peace, which kind of landed after. And after I found it, I felt like that level of peace, if only people knew that, and I connect in my sensitivity very much to it's almost like silent screams in the back of your head, you know, where you can connect to people suffering, right? And you can hear people who are really unwell, people who are really desperate. And I think this is one of the most beautiful things about having suffered yourself is that it elevates your empathy and it connects you to other human beings, right? I'm not, it's not because I'm a happy person today that I'm blinded to the idea and to the reality that some people are suffering. I choose to be happy and stay happy. I'm not gonna make myself miserable to join people down there. But I can still connect to that. And if someone somewhere is feeling as bad as I was a few years ago, I don't think there is anything more powerful. It actually gets me emotional than to bring that little bit of relief, that little bit of, hey, it's actually all okay, you know? um so that's what I want to do and I don't know you I don't know other people I've been very blessed in my life to tick a lot of the boxes I wanted to tick you know I trained myself like how do you make your vision how do you go after what you want like this is what I'm all about live you know now that you're sitting at the table you have to play and I play and I play and I play and I see that yeah you can achieve a lot of things you can live a lot of those things bucket list moments, and. Like I said before, I don't think those experiences are transcending. You know, I think they're great experiences, but it's not like, oh, I want to live forever. So that, you know, I think it kind of gets us to, oh, now uh, people, for example, who have this with money, I want to be a millionaire. Oh, now I want to be a billionaire. Oh, now I want to, you know, I don't really have this. And what I discovered is that nothing gives me more joy. I had to really sit down, by the way, to discover this about myself. I had to really sit down and ask myself a lot of questions. And I realized that nothing gives me more joy than soothing a pain point in somebody else's life. Like someone who's hungry, you give them a sandwich. It's like, ah, it feels good. (laughs) Yeah.
0: How would you feel about soothing my sciatica ahead of the hike?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure I can do it, but I'm sure I'm sure you can do it. And what I'm sure of as well is that, nothing is in our lives without meaning our purpose, even when things are difficult or ugly. Um, there is something there. right? And I know you know that.
0: yeah thank you um i want to take us to maybe um i want us to ground this conversation in geography uh in a a land a territory you and i are both in europe right now. Um, Today, just today you arrived in in Malaga, Spain. I am currently living in Brussels. And in six days from today, we will meet um, in the south of France near the, well, in the Pyrénées, uh, where we will start the hike and go into Spain. You have done the Camino before. Um, can you tell us a bit about that how many times why did you do it and maybe how it's been for you yeah I
1: love that geographic view all of a sudden I always wanted to do the Camino it was something that was on my radar for a long time and right after the pandemic in June 2021 I noticed that You know, even though I was the well-being expert and all of this, I was, I I could diagnose myself. I was going through some weird anxiety burnout, which my mind, you know, I could rationalize things, but I was feeling it. And I had this strong call to go and walk. It was like, you know what? I didn't research it. I didn't, I didn't get ready. I just showed (laughs) up with a backpack. didn't even know how to get to the, to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, you know, to the starting point and as always things aligned so the first person I meet I see on the airplane before I even make it you know to Pamplona which where I was going to take a bus I just noticed her was someone in recovery who we ended up walking together I didn't know this person but we ended up walking together and having each other's support which was amazing um I I knew I wanted to be somewhere where I could be out of time which is a little bit my concept of home in many ways you know it's like I wanted to be there but here and you know something I like to say about the Camino is that you can leave and leave and leave and leave but you never have to arrive right? It's like, it's days before you actually arrive somewhere. So you're always leaving, you can always leave. And if you're trying remotely to escape something in your life, or to make sense of something in your life, it's perfect. I see some people who get lost actually, and have been walking for a year and a half. And I totally understand the dynamic, you know. Um, I walked it the first time thinking that I didn't want to connect with anybody, That I really wanted this to be my experience. That I wanted to wake up at 4 a.m., you know, meditate, walk on my own in the dark, not speak to people, not eat like that very intense walk. And it ended up being spring break in a pilgrimage. It was just insane. Tons of people, tons of young people. We had huge fun. And there was that level of humanity where we were all going through something that was physically very difficult um everyone i mean 90 percent of the people were injured within the first two weeks you know it was just intense pain and everyone kept going and it was like this is part of life transcending our pains you know going through things despite the pain because we are going somewhere right mm-hmm. and I could see that this was not something I could do on my own but I could do it collectively and because we were all collectively suffering <laughs> there was something really beautiful about the bomb that was forming and it kind of taught me that really in life if I ever want to have a special bond with someone, what I need to do is have physical proximity with them or that regular contact, go through things, you know, over a period of time, but go through difficult things and overcome them together. And this was the story of this. This was just us getting attached to strangers just because we had shared that little moment together. Um, I was working at the time, which for me was fine, because I like what I do. So I was, you know, walking in the morning and working in the afternoon and then spending social time. And what I learned is, first of all, I learned that I'm way more badass than I ever thought I was. <laughs> you know? I thought I was badass. And then I was like, no, now now I'm badass. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um because it was 800 kilometers in the end where I felt did I just do that you know um I also learned that difficult things every time I avoid the obstacle it's a reminder it's not that I learned it on the Camino but it just refreshed that like every time I avoid an obstacle I avoid the growth right and that pain that was part of the Camino it is part of the Camino like it is part of this and I must embrace all the discomforts all the you know challenges that are present in my life as the whole experience and you know I sent you an article that I wrote about it that how I finish it is that you think you're going through the motions because you want to make it to Santiago and you're walking and you're walking despite the pain. And then you arrive in Santiago and you realize destination is merely the end. You know, the treasure is in the journey. And if you want to see the treasure, you can only see the treasure with the pain, right? You can only see the treasure with the darkness. And I loved it so much. I came back three times, I think. So this is going to be like my fifth time. On the Camino, and honestly, I would do it every year um, Mm. if I could, yeah.
0: Yay, (laughs) thank you for sharing. Uh, So one reassuring thing for me is that you said that the first time you weren't prepared. And so um, I've been taking care of myself and recovering from a sciatica which has flare-ups but I have been going to the physiotherapist and asking different people for help and uh, being uh, receptive to receiving help. That I don't know yet what it's going to be. Um, but so I, these last this last month, I've been uh, getting ready to the best of my ability with the body that I have today. And what you said reassured me in that I'm. I, this is what I have and um, it's it's okay. <laughs> and, and also you seem to say that no matter what, no matter your level of preparation, you are going to
1: experience pain, right? hundred percent, a hundred percent. And maybe to this, I would add, it's normal to feel pain. We don't wanna project pain right? Because that's something that comes from injury trauma, you know, where we can already anticipate pain and we are scared of, yeah. you know, pain or hurting ourselves or what's going to happen. And without being stupid, just having that faith in the, the body's resilience and also avoiding to tense up right as we as we feel that fear um because when the pain shows up what I've also learned is that if you're in the middle of nowhere it's exactly like in life if and if you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't have a choice you find resources within yourself to get you to that next spot right and same thing can happen in your life it's the end of everything you will find a way to get out of of your deep dark hole so it's that we'll cross that bridge when we get there we won't make that bridge right now <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah thank you for i needed to hear that <laughs> thank you for this reminder so let me just check the time okay so maybe To finish things up, uh, I wanted to ask you, and you can take that anywhere you'd like, but I know you have been working and are going to keep working with athletes. And so would you like to tell us about that? What maybe are a couple of lessons that you have learned from coaching athletes um, Or you can take it another way, which is the mental athlete, in which case, tell us what that is. And yeah, what does that bring up for you?
1: Thank you. I think um, the athlete's journey is really interesting to observe because it makes things clearer for us, processes clearer, that we're actually all experiencing, right? It's just much clearer to look at an athlete right? Because it's immediate cause and effect. If an athlete goes on the field thinking about, you know, all the stressors and all the fears, the athlete is going to mess up for sure, right? And the same way we cannot show up in life or in a relationship, a romantic relationship with all our fears and negative projections. But I think in our normal lives, um, we don't see the immediate repercussions of the things we do. Um, In contrast, athletes have, successful athletes have to be really much uh, on top of their mind habits, right? Their mental habits. So what I discovered is that, you know, there is a lot that we can take from, you know, athletic training and bring to our normal lives, which is something that a lot of people already know and explore. But the mental athlete, as you, as you talk about, is something that I developed when I was thinking, all day long, the one thing that we do is think. And it's so present that we're not even aware we're thinking, but there are no idle thoughts. You know, Every thought we have has an impact Even if it's just on us, that emotional reaction we have to the thought, right? And that emotional state is going to impact and influence the way we behave, the way we smile to the person, the way we interpret a situation. It's like everything is connected, right? And to really become disciplined, about how we use our minds I think is a big 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 key to freedom because what I observe right now and I'm sorry I'm not really talking about the whole athletic sports thing but what I really um notice and what makes me sad is that most people are their own enemies And we're constantly projecting external enemies. It's like, oh, my environment is my enemy, like the system is my enemy, or it's this, it's that. And if you could just take a few steps back and notice how you respond to the barriers that are here. And this kind of goes back to this whole political purpose and my own story, you know? Yes, I grew up in a fucked up environment. Sorry for swearing. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yes, I grew up um with, you know, the odds were against me. But then, every time I just allowed, I was the effect of that cause. I played alongside that environment to destroy myself. You know what I mean? We were accomplices in the process. And I think it happens for a lot of people, particularly people who are not in privileged situations. Uh, You see privilege however you want to understand it. We can end up unwillingly contributing to our own destruction because we're not paying attention to what's going on in our mind. And I think the first step to me, myself, going whoa 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 is to take a step back and start working on my mind right and i could go into much deeper conversation about why athletes are interesting why i think in a way they're the new gladiators and why in so many ways there is a political uh topic in there why why we need to empower athletes even more and how they could influence regular people, particularly men, uh, to start taking care of their mental wellness. Um, if you look at, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of the problems we have in society, a lot of them are caused by men. You know, uh, when you talk, when you look at violence, when you look at things, if we look at uh, data, a lot of those things are initiated by men and I'm not trying to say to to be sexist in any way but I think that women have a more a, a bigger inclination to work toward and bigger incline to work on themselves and men are still not all of them but just as a generalization it's still harder and I think there is a huge power in highlighting the fact that all these athletes that are Adored, you know, by millions of men. First and foremost, they're mental athletes, right? And this can actually inspire other men to maybe do the work. Sorry, I went into a long <laughs> so good all of my master plan. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, inspire other men
0: and women and and non-binary folks. and oh, yeah anywhere on the spectrum. (laughs) Um, Okay, I actually have one last question. I'm being selfish, (laughs) because, but yes and no, because um, the reason why I want to ask you this question is because I think it's a topic that is not discussed enough or not well-known enough and that it could be useful to some of our listeners. Um, You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you are neurodivergent. And I wanted to know what that means for you.
1: Yes. Um, It's funny because it's one of those things that I will talk casually about with my friends or with my family, but that I normally don't, even at work, I don't really talk about it. And I think this is simply because of the stigma, right? And I really um, internalized that stigma until very late in life. and. For me, I was diagnosed with something. It's still very hard for me to say it. It's still very hard for me to say it because it is so poorly understood, right? I was diagnosed with mental super efficiency when I was a kid. And all they cared about when they, um, when they diagnosed me is the fact that I had a very high IQ, which actually added to the complication of my life because it was all, well, Selika is intelligent. She should be, you know, Mm. and actually what that also meant was that I have my senses, for example, that can be under stress or when I'm tired, I have like hypersenses and I hear everything very loud and, you know, things can get very, very strong. Um, And I think very, very fast and it's everywhere. You know, it can be really hard for me to follow one thread of thought. I get Uh, distracted very easily. So, but at the same time I can have crazy hyper-focus. So when people see me work, usually they are, you know, what the hell is going on? I can have three different screens at the same time because this is how I can ensure that I'm focused on one. If there is only one screen, my laptop, my mind goes all over the place. And um, these are just some of the challenges I've had you know battling with authority etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and I think what has been difficult for me was that idea that first of all this misunderstanding you know you're supposed to and well shit because I'm supposed to but I don't or I'm not you know and The feeling different, feeling like I can't fit in no matter how hard I try, this absolute desire for isolation, like I love my own company so much I can like not see people for months, (laughs) you know, Um, and balancing that with the knowledge that I'm still a human and I still need to do the things that are important for humans, right? Um, It has been a very interesting journey in in terms of engaging with others, particularly in intimate relationships for me, because it's that ultimate test of, am I lovable? Am I adequate? Someone is seeing the real me on a daily basis and what they're seeing is a freak, (laughs) you know? And um, what has been absolutely a blessing for me uh is that last year my son was diagnosed with the same thing and i had noticed a few things you know i love my son to the moon and he's obviously like this is one of the things like one of the criteria is that he is really intelligent and then he will have all these things like to call him no matter how many times you call him you're in front of him he can't hear you you know he's in a different bubble um and he was having challenges in school uh, not for school but for behavior because he would basically call out the teachers on their bullshit and and I thought oh no 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 no, no. that's my son like he doesn't understand the rules he doesn't understand and it's a genuine I don't understand why you have you know uh, two-way standards and things like this it's um and I had to go take care of him and I had to get him diagnosed and what was incredible for me to go through this process with him was to see that first of all there's nothing wrong about him he happens to fit a person a a, a particular type of people he's in that box there is no general box like we we were we're made believe there is, right? He's fitting that particular box of people. And actually he behaves exactly like, they're also called zebra zebra individuals, zebra personalities. He fits exactly that model, right? He's just a zebra in the middle of lions or giraffes. You know, he, 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 that's, what's not fitting. And when um, the person who diagnosed him called me, she said something that made me cry. She said, um, it's really important that you understand that zebra individuals are not wrong. There is nothing bad about them, no matter how much society is going to make you believe that you're messed up, right? And she said, actually, with the right environment and the right level of love and care, the world needs people like your son, She didn't really know I was too. And she was like, the world needs people like your son because they can bring solutions to problems that others are not seeing. And first of all, this has just joined my son and me into this, Mm. you know, intimacy, you know, companionship. Like we have something that is very particular. We understand each other at a different level. But also for myself, it has brought me all the love and gentleness and care that no adult was able to give me when I was a child, right? When I was a child and I was just seeing everything that was wrong about my environment and society and, oh, there are no options and I just want to go home and, oh, let me get high because then I'm half paralyzed and then I don't have to think anymore. All I ever heard was Salika is very difficult right and I was able to go back and think Salika you were a zebra in the middle of lions you know and I'm sorry I love you you're awesome and now it's time to be your biggest freak out in the world and by the way all my freakness is out in the world right now I'm letting loose I'm just out and if that means Defying authority, I will defy authority with pleasure. If that means talking nonsense over a monologue, then not speaking at all for three weeks, I will do it. This is who I am and I'm okay with it today. I don't feel like I need to hide.
0: Yay, yay, yay. Thank you so much for your generosity and your vulnerability today. And um, I'm a fan of Hot Ones, the interviews on YouTube, um, where celebrities eat increasingly hot wings, and I really like the interviewer, and I want to finish our interview with the same um, thing that the interviewer says at the end of the interviews, which is, okay, you've taken on the wings of death, and (laughs) you're living to tell the tale, and... um, All that's left to do is to unroll the red carpet for you. This camera, this camera, this camera. Let the people know what you have going on in your life. So let us know what would you like to talk about, if there's anything you'd like to promote
1: is the idea. Oh, I'd like to promote your book, Bootcamp. This is what I'd like to promote because I think you're a fantastic... You're a fantastic coach, you're a fantastic person, and I feel blessed that you came into my life unexpectedly. Sorry, I'm not taking the space to, to put myself out there. You're deflecting, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, I really think that it, it is this, you know, you are you are brilliant. You're giving me the opportunity to write, to put something into words and as I said you know I feel like I have so many different stories to write and you're canalizing this energy and I'm just so grateful for that so grateful for your kindness and care through this process and if anyone listens to this and feels like they have you know they they were feeling that they could write a book I really really recommend Brun's workshop. Um, and maybe then this means that when my book is published, then you should read it.
0: <laughs> Definitely. That's my
1: auto-promotion.
0: Yes, I will add it to the show notes when it's out into the world. So for listeners, my program is called Write Your Book Already. If you're watching the video version of this podcast episode, you can see it behind me. Um, and it's going to be the next iteration is going to be from September 3rd to October 29th. Um, it's a great, great container with like-minded people who have had a book on their mind for a while to the point where they're like, it's now or never. And, um, I take you through the writing and revision process and then through the self publishing process. So that in two months you get from someone, you go from someone with a book idea to, Exciting published author. So the link is in the show notes as well. Salika Pesel, am I pronouncing your last name right? You yeah. <laughs> are. Because I always, uh, you know, refer to you on a first name basis, obviously. Thank you so, so much for your time today and all of your nuggets of wisdom. I am sure we will do a follow up episode if not like in six months, maybe next year or something. And I can't wait to hike the Camino with you. So I will see you in six days. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Brune. Bye. Bye.